It's Thursday, March the 7th. I'm Laura Lee. A few weeks ago in my podcast, I talked about the history of abortion in Canada. I posted a clip in my podcast, so go ahead and check that out. And that really shows really the history of all the laws and the things that have come in uh, with abortion in Canada. But sum it all up really short, Canada lost all abortion laws in 1988. Abortion was never declared legal in Canada and it was never given as a right. So go back in my podcast where I covered all that and check that out. But we're going to continue on from uh, 1988. Four years later, in 1992, there was a group of liberals who were pro-life. They called themselves Liberals for Life. This group had candidates ready to run for offices all across Canada. In order to stop the pro-life group, the Liberals gave their party leader, Jean Chrétien, the power to appoint candidates. This way, the pro-life candidates could not run. John Critchett ended up using this power and he put an end to the Liberals for Life, basically ruining their careers and taking them out of office. In 2012, at the National Convention for the Liberal Party, a vote was held. A vote to make the party officially a pro-abortion party. It passed with 80%. For the small 20% of Liberals who were pro-life, things were about to get even harder. In 2014, one day before the annual March for Life, party leader Justin Trudeau made an announcement. This is what he said, I'm going to quote, It's not for any government to legislate what happens, what a woman chooses to do with her body, and that is the bottom line. I have made it clear that future candidates need to be completely understanding that they will be expected to vote pro-choice on any bills. Each year at the March for Life, several Liberal MPs would get up and speak. By saying this one day before the annual March for Life, it was a clear call by the party leader. If you speak, you're out of the party. On October 19, 2015, Trudeau became the Prime Minister. The Liberals would then move from banning pro-life politicians not just from the Liberal Party, but in all parties. You see, two years later, in October 2017, Rachel Harder was picked by the Conservatives to be the chair for the status of women. So we're going to be really clear here. Rachel has said publicly she believes every woman should have access to abortion in Canada. She's not somebody I would consider a pro-life candidate. However, during the Harper years, a bill was brought forth that would make it a crime to kill a fetus while you're also assaulting a pregnant woman. So I'm just going to explain this a little bit clearer to you. The bill says if you're attacking a pregnant woman and you kill her baby, you'll be charged with two crimes, assault on the woman and the death of the baby. So Rachel Harder voted for this bill and apparently voting for this bill made Rachel unfit to be the chair for the status of women. The Liberals and the NTPs walked out of the meeting. They ran to the media to talk about the horrible pro-life women that had just been nominated. In December of 2017, the Liberals announced a new regulation, the Summer Job Grant, which gives grants to people who want to hire students for the summer. This would be only for pro-abortion people. Anyone applying for the grant must check a box saying they are not pro-life. The Liberal Party has moved from forcing their MPs to be pro-abortion to forcing all MPs to be pro-abortion and now anyone who gets grants from the government must be pro-abortion. According to Lisa Riot, the conservative MP from Milton, 
there's a really good chance that all charity status will soon be affected by this. Parliament's going to be holding a vote on March 19th to put a stop to this motion before the House of Commons. And this is what is going to be voted on March 19th. I'm going to quote, that in the opinion of the House, organizations that engage in non-political, non-activist work, such as feeding the homeless, helping refugees, giving kids an opportunity to go to camp, should be able to access Canadian summer job funding, regardless of their private convictions. I'm going to put a link to this petition in the description. The pro-life attacks continue in the provincial Liberal parties. Quebec passed a free speech exclusion zones, areas around abortion providers where no protesting would be allowed. And the Ontario followed with Bill 163. This passed with all three parties voting for the bill, NDP, Liberals and Conservatives. And this is why I'm kind of happy that we're getting a new Conservative leader. The bill would stop all pro-life activity within 150 meters of any abortion provider. The penalty for this is up to $10,000 and a year in prison. So on February the 21st, 2018, yes, just a few weeks ago, a 70-year-old man, his name is Mr. Winters, he became the first person to be arrested. So Mr. Winters had been standing outside a clinic for the last six and a half years. This time, Mr. Winters was not speaking for life. He was speaking for free speech. So just to be sure he didn't break any laws, Mr. Winter had his signs pre-approved by the police department. And his sign read, God save our charter rights. So nothing about abortion. While Mr. Winters was standing, remember, this is a 70-year-old man. While he's standing outside the clinic, he's very careful. He did not look at anyone going in or out of the clinic. He didn't engage with them in any way. Suddenly, four police cars, they surround the 70-year-old man. Eight police officers then come out to arrest him. He's facing heavy fines and possible jail time. This is ridiculous. So I asked both Doug and Tanya, who are running for the Conservative Party, what their thoughts were on the bubble zone. So Tanya answered, she is, an at, she is a defender of freedom of speech and expression. She finds a bubble zone oppressive and she would seek to reverse it immediately. Uh, Mr. Ford said he's a big supporter of free speech as well as the freedom of conscience for doctors and nurses. So Tanya was definitely more, I don't like the bubble, I'm going to get rid of it. Whereas Mr. Ford said he liked free speech and he does believe in the freedom of conscience for doctors and nurses. Didn't exactly answer the bubble zone problem that we have though. So I guess we'll see what happens after the next provincial election. All right, we're going to move from abortion to the Oscars. You know, when I was in high school, I loved watching the Oscars. I liked to watch movies that were nominated and guess who's going to win. I always liked movies in theaters. You know, I love the art and I still do. In university, I studied mass communications and that included theater and cinematography. It's a really beautiful art form. It's an amazing way to tell a story and share ideas. Over the last few years, though, the Oscars have changed. The movies who are nominated are either so boring that I can't sit through them or so filthy I can't even start them. The Oscar night isn't really about art anymore, it's about politics. I used to watch the Oscars as a way to escape. I'm not the only one who doesn't watch them anymore. Viewership is plummeting. And the Hollywood fancy people, they can't figure out why. Why is nobody watching this? Well, let me help you. 
No one saw any of the movies that you nominated and no one cares what you think about politically. But I was still curious and wondering who won. So I decided to look it up. You're not going to believe this. A movie about a mute woman who falls in love with a fish and has a physical relationship with him. That was one lots of them. An adult man who falls in love with a teenage boy and works hard to convince the teenage boy to be in a relationship with him. Actually won awards. So let's look at these. The first one is The Shape of Water. That won Best Picture, Directing, Music, Production Design, really wrapped it up. So this is a mute, shy girl. She works in the secret area. This fish monster is, is brought in. So this monster is kind of one part fish, one part man, one part alien. And the woman connects with this fish emotionally. And that leads to her connecting physically. The girl then realizes this fish has to be returned to the water so it can live freely. So she gets her friends to help her. So if you want to know what this fish, what this movie's like, it's kind of like if E.T. meets Free Willy, except that it's R-rated and there's actual physical scenes between the fish and the woman. So that's that movie. Another movie, Call Me By Your Name. This one for best writing of an adapted screenplay. This is, I think, the most disturbing movie to ever win an Oscar in all-time history. So there's this boy named Elo. He's 17 years old, and he lives in Italy. Now, the movie has to take place in Italy because in Italy, the consent is 14, the age of consent. Because if the movie took place in North America, it's going to end up with jail time. So Elo, he has intercourse with both a girl his own age and a 24-year-old man. Most disturbing is the fact that his parents know about both relationships and encourage both relationships. The 24-year-old man is a man named Oliver, and he's staying with the family for the summer, and he's working with Elo's dad. So Oliver decides he likes Elo, and he spends the summer trying to convince him to be in a relationship with him. And it's actually the perfect example of what we call grooming. And grooming is when an adult begins a friendly relationship with a child with the goal of the relationship turning physical. And it does turn physical, and the parents think it's a beautiful thing. Just to make it a little bit more disturbing, Oliver is engaged to a woman at the time. This year, Hollywood has been rocked with scandals, including a lot of young teenage boys coming forward saying adult men assaulted them. Adult men who are really famous, like Kevin Spacey. They've been accused of doing exactly, exactly what happens in Call Me By Your Name. And Hollywood, like Elo's parents, ignored the abuse and even seemed to embrace it. This is beyond gross. So as Christian parents, what do we do? Hollywood's getting even worse. What am I supposed to do? Our family has a Friday family movie night tradition. I make pizza. We let the kids eat chips. We snuggle on the couch and we watch a movie. I love Friday family movie nights. And I'm not going to say, hey, stop watching movies. Because it's a fun part of our life. If you have little kids, there's still a lot of great movies to watch. The problem is, as your kids get older, our youngest is now 12. So we have kids in our home now from age 12 all the way to 18. So picking a movie gets really tricky. So I'm going to tell you about a few of the things we've done. We watch classic movies. And let me tell you, it's really fun to find the movies you loved as a teen and show them to your kids. You're going to laugh about the crazy hair, the crazy clothes, and the really bad graphics. But you're going to like the stories because a really good story transcends time. 
And I'm going to ask you to check out Plugged In because not all new movies are disgusting. There's some really great ones out there. And Plugged In does a really good job of showing you what the movie is going to be like and letting you know if a Christian can watch it. You will get spoilers though, just a heads up. And I'm also going to say check out a few Christian made movies. Now I know some Christian made movies are super tacky, but some are really well made. We tend to watch three or four a year. And then watch with your kids. Sometimes there's scenes that you need to skip. Sometimes there's scenes where afterwards you can sit back and you can talk with your kids. Why do you think the director wanted to put that scene in? Or what was the director trying to tell you with that scene? Parents, you have to navigate this world and it's not going to be easy for you. But you know what? It's a lot harder for your kids. And here's something I want you to stop and think about. You need to remember, your child is going to be parenting your grandchildren. So you need to use this time to teach them how to navigate the world of movies. This week, there's been some really interesting news from South Africa. In order to understand the news from South Africa, we have to go all the way back to the 1600s. Up until 1652, South Africa was ruled by tribal people. The largest tribes were the Sun and the Khoikhoi people. In 1653, the Dutch came to South Africa. And then there was a war between the Dutch and the Khoikhoi people. The Dutch brought with them smallpox and the Khoikhoi people were killed by either the smallpox or the war. The Dutch then set up the Dutch East Indian Company. In 1815, the British came and took over South Africa. Britain made Cape Town its military headquarters. In 1890, many African people began moving to Cape Town. 28 years later, on July 18, 1918, a little boy was born who would change South Africa forever, Nelson Mandela. In 1940, Nelson Mandela joined the African National Congress. The world was in the middle of the Second World War and more British people were moving to South Africa as the world was so full of so much uncertainty. As World War II ended, the British population in South Africa had grown. Clashes between the blacks and the whites began to grow. Racism against the blacks was at, a, at its height. While black people in America had been voting for the last 20 years and were continuing to fight for their rights. In South Africa, things were moving in the opposite direction. In 1948, the apartheid began in South Africa. That meant blacks could not attend white schools. They couldn't enter hospitals through the front doors. They couldn't vote or even walk into some white neighborhoods. In 1948, the African National Congress Party was banned, and for almost 10 years, Mandela continued to fight racism with politics, but it was impossible. On March 21, 1960, 7,000 Africans marched into a town called Sharpville to protest. The police were informed about the protest, and the marchers had promised to be peaceful. 300 police officers showed up. They began shooting into the crowd and 69 protesters were killed and 186 wounded, mostly from bullets to their backs. This day would become known as the Sharpville Massacre. With the banning of political groups, Mandela had no choice. He began to start a military wing. And in 1965, this activity landed Mandela in jail with the charge of treason. Things continued to get worse for the black community. In 1966, District 6 of Cape Town was declared whites only. Any black person living in the area was kicked out. For the next 33 years, the race tensions continued. 
But in 1990, Mandela stood up and gave a speech. And it was a speech that would change South Africa. The president at the time was F.W.D. Clerk. And Mandela and Clerk began working together to find peace between the black community and the white community. Together, they made a peace agreement and the apartheid would finally be lifted. Black South Africans would have the same rights as the white Africans. Both Clerk and Mandela would win the Nobel Peace Prize for this work. In 1994, freedom came to South Africa, and it is still celebrated today as Freedom Day. April 27, 1994, Nelson Mandela became the president of South Africa. The African National Congress, once banned, is now running the country. Under Mandela, there was lots of improvements. Crime dropped, more people had electricity, housing situations were improved, education became available for more people. Cape Town was the largest city in South Africa, and it became a culture and economic center. Apartheid was obviously bad for South Africa. Judging a person by the color of their skin was clearly evil, and it was just downright stupid. In 2001, in nearby Zimbabwe, Robert Mugabe started an apartheid of his own, this time against white people. He kicked all the white people out of Zimbabwe, took all their land, and almost immediately the country faced the harsh reality of his choice. The once growing economy ended. Without farmers farming the land, there was no exports. Currency became useless and it collapsed. The country actually now uses American money. The unemployment rate jumped to 90%. It turns out racism is bad. It's bad when it's directed at blacks. It's also bad when it's directed at whites. In 2017, Mugabe was forced out of office. Zimbabwe is now asking white farmers to please return. And they're actually offering compensation for the land taken. And they're offering a 99-year lease on the land. So you would think South Africa would see from their own past and from the recent Zimbabwe failure that racism is actually really bad for a country. But a Marxist group has moved into South Africa. And they have this new law called the Black Economic Empowerment Law. And that says companies can only have 8% of their workforce be white. So this has caused companies to fire many employees just because they're white. It also made it almost impossible for white people to find jobs. The government and the banks, they've also been rocked with corruption. The banks are now ranked 113th in the world. In 2017, there was a study that showed 72% of the farmland was owned and operated by whites. This was actually down from 85% from a few years ago. Still, this made this Marxist group angry, and they wanted the farmlands taken from the white people. These political groups would actually openly call for what they say, shoot the boar, which means they actually want to kill all the white people. Farmlands are under attack. Many farmers are wounded, not just the farmers, but their entire families, even their little children. Others have fled their farms in fear for their lives and many farms have just become abandoned. On top of this problem, there's now a drought in South Africa. The farms need government help, and while the government has allocated money to help the farmers, none of that money has reached the farms. There's also a problem with the energy sector. The energy sector was forced to fire almost all of their employees in order to make only 8% of their workers white. And it's been really difficult to find black workers who are educated in the field. And let's be intellectually honest here. There's a reason they can't find black workers educated in the field. Education has only been available to the black community for about 25 years. 
The problem facing South Africa is the fault of racism. The lack of educated black people comes from the racist laws that were before 1994. And the lack of workers now comes from the current racist laws. And that brings us up to this week. This week, that Marxist group, and they are called Economic Freedom Fighters. And their leader is Julius Malama. Probably didn't say that right. But he put forth a new bill, and it passed 241 yes, 88 no. All farmlands will be taken from the white farmers, and they will be given no compensation. The deputy chief of civil rights actually said this is a violation of the agreement that was made to end the apartheid. It looks like South Africa is once again embracing racism. This time, it's a different skin color that's being targeted. But is there really a difference? Isn't all racism wrong? What's going to be the consequences of this? Well, there's a drought, and farms have been abandoned, and the energy sector has no workers. South Africa is about to have a famine. Already Cape Town, the main town of finance and industry, it's going to run out of water in probably two or three weeks. So what does this mean for Christians? Well, the unrest in South Africa right now, it's about to blow up and things are going to get even worse. As Christians, we want to reach out and help all of those affected. But the only thing that will change South Africa will be the hope and the peace that can only come through Jesus Christ. Restoration, forgiveness, peace, all of those things come through Jesus Christ. Missionary work now in that area is essential, but also missionary work in that area needs to change. We can't continue to send missionaries from North America. This is not going to be effective. As Christians in North America, we need to be supporting the pastors and the churches that are in South Africa. The entire model of mission work has to change. We have to find ways to help local pastors receive the education they need to effectively reach their nation for Christ. This has to be the new model. In order for the good news of Jesus to reach the hearts of the people living in these countries, we have to bypass the world's politics. This isn't just true of South Africa. This is true of pretty much every area of the world. So there's a mission work that I really want to highlight. It's called the Global Baptist Training Foundation. I personally know Bruce and Grace Snavely, and I know they have worked so hard in starting up the Global Baptist Training Foundation. So they offer both theological and really practical training to national pastors. They also offer training to other leaders in the church. The goal is to make sure that a national pastor can effectively preach the good news of Jesus Christ. They help the nationals understand theology so that they can evangelize and they can witness the good news of Jesus Christ. The amazing thing about Bruce and Grace is that they're teaching the nationals. And they're teaching them to be able to teach others. Bruce is running classes in East Asia, Africa, Haiti. This is a ministry that needs support. If you're looking for ways to support missions, this is the way to do it. Give the local people the education they need to do the job God has called them to do. Already in just the last five years, hundreds of local national pastors have been trained and are preaching. There are no other mission boards sending hundreds of pastors to this area. And no other missionary will be as effective as a local national pastor. If you want to know more about this, I'm going to put the webpage in the comment section. 
uh, and in, in the description section of this podcast. So go and check it out. What is this message we're so desperate to share? The good news that the God who created us loves us. And even though we've sinned against God, he still loves us. The Bible says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus Christ, God himself came to earth, lived a perfect life, and willingly gave up his life for us. The Romans nailed him to the cross, but the nails didn't hold him. The Romans didn't hold him. His love for you held him. And in his death, he took the punishment for your sins, for your sins, for my sins. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And God himself shed his blood so you can have forgiveness. But Jesus didn't stay dead. Three days later, Jesus rose again. And when you put your trust in him, he will save you. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So today, believe. Tell God you're sorry for your sin, for doing things your way instead of God's way. Tell him you believe in Jesus, his death and his resurrection, and ask him for forgiveness. Then message me. Let me know that you've done that. I really want to hear from you. To hear more about my speaking ministry, check out my webpage at laureleesiemens.com. To spell my name, L-O-R-E-L-E-E, Siemens, S-I-E-M-E-N-S, laureleesiemens.com. See you next Thursday.